What makes for an ideal bishop? What virtues should he possess? What duties should he carry out? And what graces should he seek? Join us today as we explore St. Thomas Aquinas' answers to those questions with Franciscan University theology professor Dr. Michael Cirilla, author of the new book, The Ideal Bishop, Aquinas' Commentaries on the Pastoral Epistles. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. I'm joined here in our studios with our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, a Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan, uh, and joined by Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization, again here at Franciscan, and our very special guest, Dr. Michael Cirilla. Uh, you're a Professor of Theology here at Franciscan. You have your PhD in Systematic Theology from Catholic you. You have your master's from Franciscan, so an alum, which is, which is wonderful. Uh, you've, you've published in many theological journals, The Thomist and others. You contributed to several books on metaphysics, the family, and the new evangelization. And the book that we're going to be talking about today, The Ideal Bishop, Aquinas' Commentaries on the Pastoral Epistles. Uh, so thank you uh, for doing this and for being a part of the program this Thanks morning. so much for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. Um, all right, so we, your, your book explores uh, you know, Aquinas' sense of the bishop on the episcopacy. Um, this is not something that I was familiar with prior to your book, that, that Thomas Aquinas would be uh, kind of commenting on this. Where did he uh, start this? Where did you find his work? And, and why haven't we heard about it before? Well, uh, when searching for a topic for my dissertation at, at Catholic U, yeah. I was uh, exploring many different options and Finally, uh, a priest, uh, Father Joe Kamanchak, Joseph Kamanchak, suggested, uh, I was interested in Aquinas' biblical commentaries. Those okay. are very often not, they haven't been looked at very much in the last hundred years or so. Treasures left undiscovered. <clears throat> yeah, at least recently. Okay. Not so much recently. So I suggested some translation projects, and he said, look, instead of translating Aquinas' commentary on Matthew, for example, which is a great commentary, why don't you examine systematically Aquinas' theology of the episcopacy that he develops mm. in his pastoral epistles? Mm. At that time, the pastoral epistle commentary, that, that would be First and Second Timothy and Titus. They're called the pastoral epistles because there's handbooks, so to speak, that Paul wrote for two bishops, St. Timothy from Ephesus and St. Titus from Crete, uh, to instruct them on all things regarding episcopal governance and, and their role and duties. Um, and so I said, oh, okay, let's, let's do it. So uh, Aquinas, uh, the Episcopacy is a mystery of, part of the mysteries of faith. Mm -hmm. So it is a revealed mystery of faith. It, it's part of the larger mystery of the church, mm -hmm. the divine and human uh, mystery of the church. Um, so Aquinas treats the Episcopacy repeatedly, as does his contemporaries in the medieval period. Um, he treats it in his Summa Theologiae. People may be familiar with that work. Um, but Aquinas, uh, a third of his complete works are 
a third of, it, of his works are dedicated to commentaries on scripture. Mm-hmm. And they, like I said, they've been kind of untapped. Um, and when he comments on scripture, he gives a literal commentary, but he develops very organically and spontaneously a robust set of theological insights in his commentary. So, so that's how I hit upon it. Okay. And there are a lot of reasons why they haven't been looked at or known about. Especially for laity, our concern is not as much the episcopacy because we're not bishops. That's right. right. That's right. So that's there's, another reason. There's another way we can sort of contextualize your study too, because it's not quite 150 years since Pope Leo XIII launched a kind of renewal in the study of St. Thomas Aquinas, because he had really kind of been forgotten for a while. But around the 1878-1879, as you know, he launches this renewal of Thomism. Mm -hmm. And for about 50 years, there is this great resurgence in Thomistic philosophy and metaphysics. And then the second 50 years, there's a kind of response reaction, you know, and that is the resource Mont, de Lubac, and others who are going back to St. Thomas, but also going back to the Fathers Mm -hmm. and to the Bible. And then in the last 30 years or so, there's a kind of Thomist resource Mont where you're kind of going back to Aquinas, but not just for his philosophy, you're also taking into consideration the fathers. And then you're also discovering, as you just mentioned, the fact that one third of the opera omnia, one third of what Aquinas was doing was writing scripture commentary. And that's what he was doing basically for his full-time job at the University of Paris. As a matter of fact, that was his (laughs) job title. That's right. Was Magister in Sacra Pagina. His duty was to comment on scripture. That was his his, job. And yet the biblical commentaries were the single most neglected part or portion of his corpus. And this is a retrieval of that. That's it, Scott. Thank you for mentioning Resource (laughs) Month because that's the value of this. It's not merely uh, archeological digging and just (laughs) curious and, oh, that's interesting what a 13th century guy had to say. Really, it's profoundly relevant. What I've seen in the study is that there's a lot of relevance and fruit that can come by recovering, retrieving. Aquinas, it's not just Aquinas. It's St. Paul, it's the Holy Word of God, it's Scripture, it's Augustine and all the fathers. But it's Lombard and Albert and Dionysius. I mean, it's just fantastic. To the present is just... uh, We're not at all surprised by this intense uh, abiding interest that Aquinas takes in Scripture. I mean, ignorance of that, as Jerem reminds us, is ignorance of Christ. And Thomas is completely anchored uh, to the mystery of of Jesus. But the conventional wisdom regarding Thomas is he only talks about Aristotle because he wants to baptize this guy. And Aristotle doesn't say anything about uh, the pastoral epistles, for heaven's sake. Uh, So this is an area that is somewhat virgin territory, and you have penetrated it, I think, with, with great uh, 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 industry yeah. uh, and erudition, and it's impressive, yeah. the work that you've produced. Because yeah. we have, uh, I'm as a layman, not as a theology professor, know the Summa Theologica. And right. not that I know it uh, by any means yeah, in yeah, its yeah. substance, but that's the, what first comes to mind with Aquinas. But now you're, you're diving into this whole third of his work is in, in the scriptural uh, uh, commentaries. But, but when you think about all this, I do think of the, the philosopher. I think of all of these things that, that Aquinas is known for. What motivated him as he looked at the, the, the spiritual growth, the pastoral growth of the episcopacy? What, what do you know what, what, what led him to, to, to be this kind of, bring this kind of commentary uh, based on his experience or insights or just he saw it in scripture and was commenting on scripture? At least two things. And one is that, that his duty, the principal duty of the master of theology at Paris at the time of the 13th century, was to comment on scripture, 
to dispute in order to arrive at an accurate understanding of the depths of the meaning of Scripture. And then the third duty, often overlooked as well, widely unknown, is to preach, to take those fruits of dispute, mm-hmm. contemplation, and study and uh, uh, craft them in a modality that can exhort and convert the hearers mm-hmm. in mass it, during a homily, the university sermon. Yeah. So the first reason he did it is because that was his duty. He had to <laughs> comment on, all, the master had to comment on all the scripture from Genesis to the apocalypse. So at some point he's going to get to pastoral epistles. So he gets there. Okay. The second reason you can see somewhat obliquely behind the text that pops up on occasion is that Thomas has a really profound and consuming love for Christ mm. and love for souls. Mm. And that love drives him, and especially, in particular for bishops, to be acutely aware, but also humble, that there are problems in the episcopacy. There are successes and, and failures. And so his students were all clerics. Some of them would go on to be bishops. So he wanted to equip them with the Word of God, uh, interpreted by the fathers and the church herself, to empower them to understand the precious gift of the episcopacy as a state where the individual in it is supposed to perfect others in holiness. Mm -hmm. This is another Mm -hmm. huge Mm -hmm. point that sort of needs context, because when we hear Paris or the University of Paris, we're like, is that going on? To, no, it's not. Right, right. Yeah. But when you go back, this is really around the time that the universities were being born in Europe. You know, prior to the universities, you both mostly have monasteries. And so you have the Benedictines and the Cistercians. And so the scriptures are always being contemplated and proclaimed. But this breakthrough with the mendicants, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, is accompanied by Innocent III back in 1215 at the Lateran Four Council, where all of a sudden there's the desire to say, look, it's not just the religious who are there cloistered. But there's something universal about this. It anticipates Vatican II. So the very idea of a university is to take from the religious and give to the clergy the formation that they need in scripture and in theology to proclaim the word. But like you said, I mean, most all of his students were clergy in preparation for Mm -hmm. preaching and proclamation of the word. And then all of a sudden you're like, this has, is an idea whose time had come <laughs> then, and I suggest then, yeah, now. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it could be said, I don't mean this pejoratively, but uh, here's the 800-pound gorilla in the room, uh, the bishop, the blooming episcopacy. You've got to say something about it. Uh, uh, what, what, is, what is the meaning of it? What, what's the theology of, of the interior life of being a bishop? What is it all about? Yeah. What's the connection uh, with virtue, uh, with Christ? Y- yeah, and historically what's going on too is we're on the heels of the Al- Albigensian crisis where some bishops in France yeah. fell afoul of the truths right. of the faith right. yeah. and the mendicants played a role in helping to adjust that right. and to help uh, reconvert and renew, frankly, not only the faithful but the episcopacy as well. Right. Mm. Right. So, so let, let, let's yeah, say yeah. something about the episcopacy. Yeah. What, what did what did Thomas? What did he say? Uh, or how would he define uh, the the episcopacy? The episcopacy is a state of perfection, and that's a loaded yeah. term. Yes. Yes. An yes. active state of perfection. An active. Yes. yes. That's right. a, a, whereas the religious life is the passive, passive state. Yes. Now a state is a relatively stable condition. It's meant to last. Okay. Uh, it's received by ordination. Yep. Okay. So you're in um, that essentially for a and life. perfection <laughs> here does not is not descriptive. Of necessarily of the bishop, but it's prescriptive. Necessarily it's not descriptive. It's a prescription. <laughs> really? they, they, the, and the perfection here is simply this. It's not 
principally perfection of knowledge, though that's important. It's not principally perfection of justice or prudence or fortitude, although those are all important. It's the perfection of supernatural charity. Mm -hmm. Love of God, supernatural love of God above all else, and supernatural love of neighbor for the sake of God, right? So the bishop is in a state uh, 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 active state of objective perfection where he's put in the state to actively be the conduit in the hands of the Lord to perfect the faithful in holiness, in the love of God above all else and love of neighbor as themselves. And in order to do that, there are a lot of requirements. So the definition, how does he define it? It's, a state of, it's an active state of perfection in which the recipient receives grace of the Holy Spirit without which it doesn't even exist hmm. in order to uh, perfect others to, to, to really pour out their life to the point of death, whether it's a martyr's death or just death from exhaustion, to work tirelessly day and night, copiously, uh, and in all the needs, physical, temporal, spiritual, eternal needs of the faithful. Like a dad. Yeah. You yeah, wake up in the middle yeah. of the night, you got, it's 24-7, you're, and just to pour out your life out of love. In fact, Thomas says it's a perfection of the love of neighbor. Right. The episcopacy yeah. is the perfection of the love of neighbor because you give up everything for them. Yeah. This is yeah. sort Bring of them to intoxicating Jesus. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this yeah. rich vintage, uh, yeah. I, I don't know that most of us can, can imbibe it uh, uh, too often. <laughs> but, but Thomas is reflecting, I think, the prior teaching of the pseudo-Dennis. Uh, the Areopagite, uh, who, who identifies in an a priori way the prescriptive and descriptive. This is the way things ought to be. He ought to be configured actually to Christ. I mean, in the ecclesiastical hierarchy, this is exactly the way things are. That paradigm should somehow sustain the life of the church all the time. Right. So be worthy of the flame consuming you. Right. Most people, not just bishops, most of us can't quite achieve the level that we're supposed to aspire to. And without grace, none of us can. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know, this idea of the descriptive and the prescriptive, you're right. It goes back to Dennis, you know, Dionysus the Areopagite, who Aquinas took to be the convert of Paul in Acts 17 there at Mars Hill, who ends up in tradition being the first bishop of Athens. You know, and, and he's describing in this early work the ecclesiastical hierarchy, the different levels of the church, but he also writes the celestial hierarchy yep. and really coins the term hierarchia yep. to show the sacred order. And since the celestial hierarchy of the nine choirs of angels is what it is, the ecclesiastical hierarchy ever since Jesus' coming ought to be an earthly match of what this heavenly hierarchy, because in the liturgy they are united. And so suddenly you realize what an even larger and more beautiful context for understanding this. No right. doubt, and he's not just performing a work of pure creativity, pulling it out of thin air. Right. What he's doing is seeing the reality, both from nature and revelation, the revealed uh, fact that God works through intermediaries. Right. He becomes a man, he appoints people to represent him. Luke 10, he who hears you, hears me. So he, he, the Lord, the Lord incarnate, is working in and through these intermediaries. This is Dionysius' whole point of hierarchy, is that the lower, we, are brought to theosis or divinization or salvation through intermediaries. The illumination through whom God of those uses. above us. Yes. Yeah. And that's yeah. both uh, preaching and, and in the intellect. It's also with grace in the sacraments, right? And it's also with governing to adjust our behavior towards love. And all of those this three is rooted, duties. too, yeah. 
in what Jesus is saying, you know, be perfect as your yeah. heavenly Father is perfect. Right. It isn't perfectionism, it's maturity, it's holiness. Right. And so, you know, if you're to figure out what is the shortest distance between where I am right now <laughs> and heaven, right. well, that's the state of perfection. That's the, the line that you draw. The state of passive, or the passive state is sort of like getting away from the world like the contemplatives or the hermits. And then, but the bishop is the one who's in the active state because it's assumed that you can't give what you don't have. That's it, right. yeah. And right. so the bishop has got to have that holiness in order to give it. Of course, the sacrament is really the reservoir and the supply. But what an incredibly oh, angelic God. calling mm -hmm. the bishop has. And frankly, in yeah. all three pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, there are these copious lists of, of vices and, uh, yeah. to avoid and virtues right. that bishops absolutely need without which they can't execute their task. And at the bottom of it all is a grace they receive from the Holy Spirit That's ordination. It, the of hands. That's it. That's it. Stay with us for the next segment. Of <laughs> <laughs> In our time, theology's become increasingly separated and divorced from the study of sacred scripture, uh, which is catastrophic for theology because it's got to be rooted in God's self-revelation to us. One of the wonderful things about Dr. Cirilla's book is that he, he under the guidance of St. Thomas, um, he illustrates that intimacy that we need between theology uh, and scripture, and in this case, uh, between uh, scripture and the office and role of the bishop even today. The ultimate goal of the bishop's vocation, the purpose of all his activity, and that to which his office is finally directed, namely the final cause of the episcopacy, is nothing less than the glory of God and the salvation of his neighbors. Michael G. Cirilla, the ideal bishop. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about the ideal bishop, kind of commentaries from St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, so, uh, Mike, as we look at uh, Thomas's approach to the bishop, uh, what does he believe happens in the Episcopal consecration? What, what gifts are imparted, uh, according to Thomas, in this uh, consecration of a bishop? Yeah, he follows Paul's text to, to Timothy very closely, both first and second Timothy very closely. Paul, in each of those letters, discusses uh, the, the gift of grace and the Holy Spirit mm. that, that he conferred and the other presbyteroi. These would be elders, frankly, other bishops. Okay. Uh, the gift of grace that was conferred on Timothy through the laying on of hands and prophecy. Mm. Thomas interprets the prophecy to be this, in the early church, Selection of bishops was done both by natural inquiry, you know, means of finding someone out and what they're like, finding about what a person's like, 
but especially by fasting and prayer. And you see this in Acts of the Apostles and appointing people, and they always turned to great spiritual exercises to appoint a bishop. So the prophetic word that Paul talks about in reference to Timothy, they received through the prayer and fasting to uh, follow the Holy Spirit's lead to identify Timothy as his chosen vessel, an instrument mm. to be the bishop eventually of, uh, of Ephesus. Right. Okay. Um, and so with that laying on of hands, he re the, the bishop receives, the bishop elect or the bishop, be one being made bishop receives a stable state. So they, they enter into an active state of perfection w and in the context of which they make a vow during their consecration, a vow to live their lives in service of Christ as the spouse of his uh, local church. Okay to serve them, to live and die for Hence them. the ring. The, the ring, absolutely. Yeah. He receives um, all sorts of very particular targeted graces, but before I mention that, he also receives a special office and duty, mm. and Paul talks about this, do not relinquish the office of evangelist, Timothy, mm. that you received when we laid our hands upon you. So the bishop receives the office of being a preacher of the good news, uh, for the salvation of souls. And then accompanying that is a whole battery of graces. Of course, as in any sacrament, you receive an increase of sanctifying grace. Now Aquinas and his contemporaries did not understand the Episcopal consecration as a sacrament of holy orders, and that's a tangent we don't have to go on, because it is. Right. There are plenty of things like the Immaculate Conception people may have been confused uh, on, and the church clarified it later. No, it is revealed. But, but wait, wait, to state the obvious, what yeah. you're showing us, or what St. Thomas was teaching, was that the bishop is not primarily the chief executive officer of a corporation no, that's right. or the chief financial officer or really even the primary administrator, you know, but proclamation and contemplation and, and studying scripture to proclaim it as an evangel, the principal evangelizer of this diocesan tribe. And, and that duty flows from a, a, a received new identity as spouse and father. So as much as when I got married and became a father in the natural order, right. when you become a bishop, yes. you really become the husband in persona Christi Capita in a new way, and you also then represent the bridegroom to the bride in the celebration of the word and sacrament. And in his commentaries on Paul's letter to Timothy, Aquinas elaborates on this beautifully. He says that the bishop as spiritual father of his flock, he begets new children for the Lord through his preaching. <coughs> that preaching yeah. leads them to baptism, et cetera. And that was really the primary thing that he saw, or one of the primary things that is the, the role of preaching uh, that's right. a bishop. I mean, that's Th this is really telling stuff, and yeah. uh, I'm yeah. reminded of, of the introduction to your, your marvelous book, Michael, uh, by Archbishop DeNoya, who recommends it precisely because it helps disabuse bishops mm. of, of this this canard, this notion that I'm really about bricks and mortar, building things, managing things, right. the church reduced to machinery. Uh, that's not what it's about. Thank you. I think you're hitting, Regis, right on the central nerve here. This is the real essence of, at least my hope for how this could be of some help, not because of me, but because of Thomas and the tradition and St. Paul. Uh, sure, bishops absolutely have to be administrators, uh, and deal with money and fundraising and hospitals. Just like fathers do in their families. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. But none of that is of any account apart from their more fundamental identity as father to perfect the faithful right. uh, in holiness. Yeah. yeah. And, and he yeah, does yeah, that yeah, primarily yeah. by preaching? Is that the point? That's what Thomas Expounding says. Expounding yeah. uh, the fullness of divine revelation. That's right. I mean, like father, like son. I mean, if Timothy is the son <coughs> of Paul, the spiritual father, then what did he 
you know, experience, you explained that proclaiming, proclaiming the word is an inseminating act. That's it. That's right. Because it's yeah. the seed of the word planted in the soul that brings divine life, supernatural rebirth, which is then nurtured unto maturity and holiness. That is precisely how Aquinas describes right. the preaching activity of the bishop as a father. In fact, he says it's the bishop spreads his seed. He says yeah, this right. and inseminates uh, the people and, and, and they are born to, to new life. Now, now, one of, one of the uh, readers, from when this was a dissertation in a more raw form, yeah. in my defense said, well, he asked, he challenged me during my defense, what about Aquinas and the bishop's office regarding the sacraments? There's not a lot on that. And I said, that's correct. What Aquinas does with respect to the sacraments is uh, the, the sacraments, such as baptism, um, require a suitable minister, but the minister doesn't have to have a commanding, thoroughgoing wisdom, knowledge, and penetration, and, and grasp contemplatively of the entire Word of God so as to correct errors, to encourage and direct people in the truth of the faith. That requires a skill, an erudition, a contemplation, supernatural, natural graces that are un paralleled. You don't need that for baptizing. Yeah. Yeah. So the yeah. supernatural life certainly comes through baptism. He doesn't deny that. Intensified by the Eucharist, restored by penance, none of that's denied. But Thomas sees it like this. When Paul says, we came, others baptized, but we preached. Okay, when yeah. Paul says that in Corinthians, he, Thomas will say, look, what he's saying is not that baptism is not important. It's just that it doesn't require the skill and the holiness and the uh -huh. erudition and the profound uh -huh. mystical contemplation required yeah. to have uh, like a command and grasp of the truths of faith so he can lead the faithful. And it's not just inseminating them. Once they're already uh, children of God, they need to be protected by the Father from mistakes, right. errors, or heresies. And how do you govern in that regard? And, and so preaching is, is central for these and other reasons. Mm. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the, in, the, in the medieval period, a little bit before Aquinas, uh, just because you had holy orders didn't necessarily mean that you could hear confession or preach. That's right. I mean, because there weren't seminaries yet. They weren't inseminating these fathers with that capacity. I mean, you reached a point where you could qualify for that sort of thing. Yeah. But I mean, baptizing and saying mass was sort of like, you know, meat and potatoes. That That's was what the you basic do. duty That's right. of the priest. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, and then you ascend to this through preparation, through formation. And right. there's something, you know, it's sort of elusive about something so ancient, but something realistic about that yeah. as well. So yeah. you don't have to be especially uh, precocious to baptize, uh, uh, you know, some pagan child. You need water. You need to do it with the intent of the church, her understanding of faith. Right. But to preach, uh, you've got to be steeped in God's Word. And you suggest that, that in order to qualify as bishop, maybe you ought to be pretty holy just to begin with. Oh. Ordinarily wait speaking. for the office uh, yeah. ordinarily, to ordinarily speaking that's right yeah. that's right uh, well, yeah. let's go to the we talked about the fact that this is a calling you know that, that there is a there's a yes. certain sense where you're you're the prophecy that he comments on and, and but that there's prayer and fasting and, and so forth yes. involved in the discernment if you will of a bishop and the laying on of hands the conferral of, of the consecration um, but but also the, the idea that, that grace builds on nature. Uh, when we look out, the, they aren't simply a CEO or an administrator or any of those sorts of things, but there's probably uh, qualities, virtues, habits uh, that would really um, set one up to be an effective or ideal uh, bishop. What, what, is, what does Aquinas say about that? Yeah, sure. There, there are, as I mentioned in the first segment, a number of lists of vices and virtues <coughs> that a bishop should be free from or acquire for, in terms of virtues uh, to be a suitable bishop, a suitable instrument in the hands of Christ to, to, 
to love and perfect the faithful in holiness. First Timothy chapter three is one of the best and most seminal lists there. Um, it's introduced by Paul saying, he who desires the episcopacy desires a good work. Mm. And so Thomas says, it's not okay to desire the episcopacy as such, because that might be presumptuous on your case, thinking you're super holy or something, or super naturally well-suited. But, uh, but what you're desiring is not the esteem, but it's the good work, the, the bonum opus, the good work of perfecting others in service to Christ. And then he says, a bishop should and shouldn't be the following. And there's a whole list of things. Yeah. So here yeah. are some things that are interesting. Um, and Thomas's elaborations on this are just profound. A bishop should not be a drunkard or a striker. So these are natural vices and their sins uh, from which a bishop must be immune. Drunkenness uh, Thomas will say, it, it, Paul doesn't elaborate, he just lists them. And then Thomas elaborates and says, well, well drunkenness uh, prevents you from being watchful and attentive to what's going on. And as a dad, you have mm -hmm. to be a spiritual father, yes. very attentive, and drunk, you're going to get dissipated. A striker, someone who's violent, okay, that often comes from uh, drunkenness or other vices. And, and that's a person who's failing in charity, right? Uh, but a bishop should be hospitable. Right? He should be decorous. There's a whole list of, of virtues a bishop should have. He should be one, Thomas elaborates on this list a, a little later on and says, a bishop should be one who is not a lover of money, Thomas will say, mm -hmm. not greedy. And this is important because Thomas says there's a peculiar temptation that bishops are subject to that most of the rest of us aren't, and that's bribes. <laughs> that's bribes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. If he's a lover of money, he's going to get pulled by the nose around and, and, and abused by the briber right. and possibly uh, failed to render a fair and just judgment on somebody in an ecclesial case or to preach unpopular truths. Thomas will say in 2 Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Right. Even if it upsets people, don't be a jerk, but you yeah. gotta love them. Yeah. And loving as a dad, sometimes it's the hard thing. Son, you gotta stop hitting your brother. Paul, <laughs> Paul uses a very you know. interesting imagery you know, of the itchy ears. Yeah, you know? yeah. Don't just scratch where they itch. You know, right. Give them what they need, yeah. not just what they want. You know, That's right. We give keep them coming back. Yeah. We <laughs> keep coming back you know, to Aquinas, yeah, but then to Paul, because you know, in the New Testament we have the Corpus Paulinum, the, the body of Paul's writings, which in antiquity were 14 epistles. You begin with Romans, you go through the Corinthians and the Galatians, and you know, a church had never been to Rome, the first, you know, an infant church in Corinth, and then Ephesians is particularly deep. But at the very back of the collection of Paul's letters are these pastoral epistles yeah, yeah. to 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd Ti uh, Titus, sorry, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Yeah. Timothy is the bishop of Ephesus. Titus is the bishop of Crete. Paul has been both places. He preached there and he's left these men behind to fulfill fatherhood yeah, in effect, yeah, you know. And so by the time you reach that portion of Paul's letters, you're like, wow, this is a brilliant place. And Aquinas zeroes right in on that right, right. to kind of unpack, because it wasn't just good doctrine. It was the example of Paul's own spiritual fatherhood to his sons, and then calling those sons to become fathers right. to the flock in Ephesus and it's not, or it's, in Crete. And so it's not just natural virtues yes. that they need to yes. acquire. No. It's a supernatural life, yes, and right. Paul will talk about this, with a purity of conscience and a right faith, unfeigned faith. These are the supernatural gifts that the bishop needs above all. And he it's not just a right faith, a right charity, a pure conscience. Like a father, but it's not father-like. It's not less father 
fatherly than my fatherhood, but much more and much closer to God's fatherhood. That's what's startling about what Paul is demanding right, right. and what Aquinas is expounding. That, that's right. Yeah. So he should be, Paul will say, we'll, we'll, we'll say, he must not be, he's just repeating, uh, uh, Thomas is just repeating Paul here, the bishop must be blameless that's right. yeah. on the negative side. On the positive side, he has to be perfected in love. So yeah. those go together. That not doesn't do mean, as I say, but not as that, I that do. That doesn't mean he can never <laughs> sin. That doesn't, blameless doesn't mean he never right. sins. Oh, that's right. It means he's progressing in his own purification so that he's suitable, suited to perfect others. Yeah. Wow. Do we know any bishops uh, like this who <laughs> literally shine like the sun? There's a few, uh, there's one on the cover, St. Augustine. Let's pick that yeah. part up yeah. on the yeah. next segment. <laughs> Stay with yeah. us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. In the prologue to his lectures on Titus, Aquinas likens the bishop to a supernatural father, a householder who begets spiritual children by preaching the word of faith, who instructs them in this doctrine and who guards them from the thief, that is, the teacher of false doctrine. Michael G. Cirilla, the ideal bishop. I am a communication arts major, the president of Film Club, and an editor for Franciscan University Presents. It's really great to be able to work on Franciscan University Presents because it is a national television show on EWTN, and in a lot of other schools you're not going to have that kind of ability to put that on a resume. When I graduate, I know that I'm going to, to be firm in sticking with my faith and you know going to daily mass and a frequent confession and things like that, because instead of just learning with my mind or just focusing on schoolwork, I, I actually you know, can grow with my whole person. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Aquinas underscores the special communication of the Holy Spirit received by the bishop at his consecration, given so that he may execute the duties of this office in the face of many difficulties. Michael G. Cirilla, the ideal bishop. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. We're being recorded right now in our studios in our communication arts department. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment. Our theology faculty are members of our panel. Uh, today we've been talking about the ideal bishop uh, with Dr. Michael Cirilla, a commentary from St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, We've talked a, a little bit about the commentaries. We've talked a little bit more about some of the qualities necessary. Um, what are the essential duties, according to Thomas, uh, for a bishop? Well, in addition to the principal duty, which right. is preaching. Preaching, okay. Um, and, and really perfecting the faithful in the, in the holiness of charity, right? And leading them to their eternal salvation. In addition to all that, uh, Which is pretty duties. big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the point. And all the other duties are ordered to that end. Okay. Everything else, the administrative duties, etc. So there are duties, and Thomas will talk about this, in terms of providing as he can for the temporal needs. And Paul will talk about this. Uh, food and, and caring for different persons in different states of life, widows, uh, old men, old women, younger men, younger women. This is how a bishop should relate to people older mm. or younger than himself. Paul, uh, Paul's very sensitive, and Thomas is very sensitive to Paul being sensitive too. Um, different bishops with different personal kind of temperaments okay. and the need to adjust. So, for example, a uh, bishop needs to has a duty to himself. First of all, I guess the big duty is for himself because if he's tanked, he can't help anybody. Yeah, so the bishop has to care for himself. He has to love himself properly in Christ. And so Paul will say, for example, uh, Timothy was was a younger 
guy. And so his youth could set him up to be disregarded. So Thomas says, uh, Thomas sees Paul encouraging Timothy to be a little bit more firm and don't let people disregard you even because of your youth. Yes. Whereas Titus was grouchy. Titus was, was a little, at least according to Thomas in the tradition. And so Paul is, is, telling, is helping Titus to temper his anger, okay? Mm-hmm. And you see this in several places in the short epistle to Titus. Other duties include, directly related to preaching, has to do with when there are errors and dangers to the faith. And this comes up repeatedly in all three pastoral epistles. In Titus especially, Thomas and the whole tradition from the fathers up to Thomas and beyond, uh, see that the theme of Titus is to correct the evildoers, the wrongdoers. And sometimes that correction, if it's not taken right away or well, and the person is hardened in the error, and they're hurting the faithful Mm. by teaching error or encouraging them to sin, the bishop might have to, as a final resort, as an act of love, as Paul says, like Hymenaeus and others put them out of the community, he might have to excommunicate. But Thomas construes excommunication as precisely an act of love so that the person feels the bite and the pain of being cut off from the sacraments and the real need he has for Jesus Christ so that he may soften up and come back and convert. It's restorative. It's restorative to them. It's also protective. The bishop also has to protect the faithful from a bad brother or sister who might be hurting them. Leading the flock away. You gotta stop that. Yeah, so that bishop has a very solemn duty to find suitable candidates for the priesthood Mm. and there's a whole list of criteria (coughs) for that and and, you know don't hastily lay, Paul says don't hastily lay hands on another but test him first. So So teaching, governing, and discipline. Uh, It's a a challenging uh, uh, job isn't it? (laughs) Uh, I'm amazed that there are so many excellent bishops uh, who have yeah. pulled this off. No doubt. It's nothing short of a miracle. Uh, and, and the vices that, that they must uh, avoid, uh, you know, this avidity for money. I mean, Paul says it's the root of all evil. Or even to be avid for fame or prestige right. or power, all of that, that those are all taboos. Uh, so where do you find uh, bishops uh, cut from that particular bolt of cloth? Well, in the tradition, you know, we found them in the monasteries. That's right. Yeah. Both east and west, the tradition would be. Now, of course, we find them outside the monasteries, too. Yeah. Ambrose, great example. But he was just a catechumen. And became a bishop. <laughs> but um, the tradition there is that in the monastery, a monk is in the passive state of perfection. So one who's faithful to their duties is perfected passively in holiness. And if they're erudite and su- well-suited, and through prayer and fasting, you can select them. They could, they could very well be yeah, a good bishop. Yeah, we have a yeah. number of bishops right now who are from religious communities. That's true. Uh, Boston, and Bishop of Bo- or Cardinal like, Boston, like, Archbishop of yeah. uh, Philadelphia, Franciscans, and um, I think that makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. that, makes I, I think that was the point that, that Balthazar had made in that mm-hmm. essay that mm-hmm. you cite, Theology and Sanctity, mm-hmm. that really until the period of high scholasticism, it was striking the number of, of bishops who happened also to be saints and learned theologians who could expound the scriptures, the fullness of revelation, and in fact, enfleshed it in their lives, not just in their a- teaching. Absolutely, and in so many ways, Paul's the model of this. What did Paul do? upon his conversion, baptism. He converts, he's baptized. He goes off into the desert. He studies the Old Testament. Yep. He, he studies the scriptures. He prays. He has years of asceticism. It's almost like mm. his own monastery. You know, he, we, and then he comes and is, is called into public Right, life. right. So a bishop who has this, uh, whether they're in a monastery or yep. in a, other states of life, a person needs to have, where you find them, they have to have a robust prayer life as well as great 
skill and acting. Right, right. I'm glad you mentioned this monastic link because I think there's a disconnect in most people's minds because monasticism just seems something exotic and ancient. But when Jesus is talking about Mary to Martha, she's chosen the one thing necessary. That's the meaning of monikos. That's the origin of monasticism, to do the one thing necessary, and that is to be at Jesus' feet, to allow him to form you with his words. And so to see the passive state of perfection as the preparation for the bishop who enters the active state of perfection, I think there's a realism here again that has to be retrieved yeah. mm. because the East has maintained this essentially. Yeah, you know? right. yeah. And yeah, Scott, you had early on made the point that you can't give what you haven't got. Right. So if the bishop is not already immersed yes. uh, in the mystery, the life of grace, then he doesn't really have much uh, uh, to, uh, to transmit. Well, can he becomes right? an yeah. embarrassment. They're living from paycheck to paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> the, mouth, you know? the sacraments aren't magic. Yeah. So if you don't have it, the sacrament's it's not, not going to give it to you. That's right. Grace builds on nature. You need works in through nature. You need the you nature. But you know, um, yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you talked yeah. about uh, the, the idea of them rooting out heresies or errors and yeah, the possibility yeah, yeah. of yeah. excommunication. Yeah. Uh, then you also talked about the, the, the priesthood, uh, both in the selection and the care of priests. D- d- does, does he go further in uh, the duties of a bishop? Uh, with regards to how they look at the priests, how they care for their priests, in terms, well, uh, both in the selection as well as their formation and so forth. And not a lot more about the form. Thomas says more than Paul does. Paul sure. just says, "Don't lay your hands on hastily, but pro- prove the guy." Okay. Paul also says those. The next verse is and this is First Timothy around I think chapter five. Paul says um, those who. Uh, uh, are in error or, or, or causing trouble, rebuke before all that all may stand in fear. Mm. So Thomas takes this to mean those priests, right? And so if a priest is causing trouble, uh, Thomas makes these distinctions. Um, he first approaches him privately. You use the Matthew 18 principle. You don't yeah. rebuke him publicly <laughs> right away. Yeah, yeah. You rebuke him privately first, and if there's yeah. no... But if the priest does cause trouble in a public forum, the bishop in a public forum doesn't necessarily, re- you know, shame the guy, but he does issue the calm correction. The yeah. priest made a mistake, you know. And we've seen this. We've seen this happen in dioceses in the United States where bishops stepped in and helped to correct a priest's mistake, right? But there's a special, uh, beautiful section where Paul will say, those presbyters who are accused do not accept any accusation against them except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And what, Paul, what Thomas says here is this, that the standard for receiving a case in an ecclesiastical court for priests is much higher than that for laity. For laity, mm-hmm. you could just have one accuser. Why? Because priests have a target on their back. Yeah. It, it, they, could, they are much more susceptible to false accusations not that there aren't bad priests, yeah. but you've got to be really, the bishop must be, Thomas sees Paul saying, bishops have to be very diligent, careful, not to just admit any old accusation, because yeah. priests will be preaching, some of them, and preaching unpopular things, and it'll upset certain people. One right. slight adjustment, though. I mean, what, what, what Paul is doing, of course, is quoting the Mosaic Law, two or three witnesses. Right, right. So that's true for individuals as well, who are laity, not just clergy. But I think if that's true for laity, how much truer is it going to be when priests are accused? But Thomas makes this distinction. For laity, two or three witnesses is needed for testimony when the trial's already started. Only one accusation is needed to get it started. Then you need two or three as your... But in this case, you can't initiate it. You can't even start it with... Yeah, that's... Thomas, I didn't didn't make that clear, but yeah. yeah, No, but what what I wanted to do is sort of, you know, a segue into this, you know, because we've got bishop, priest, and deacon. Episcopate, presbyterate, and diaconate. And when you go 
to the early church, the Didascalia and elsewhere, you can see the Old Testament model in the Mosaic Law because you've got Aaron, you've got his sons, and then you've got the Levites. And so the deacons are called our Levites, right. interestingly. Right. But if you go back before the Aaronic priesthood of the patriarchal period, you have the patriarch, like Jacob, you have his 12 sons, and then you have all of their kids as well. And so yeah. it really is a deliberate analogy based upon an extended family going out yeah, three or yeah. four generations, yeah, you know, yeah. because mm. the patriarch really, you know, I'm now an in-law, father-in-law, I'm a grandfather, and all of a sudden, paternity has become much more complicated <laughs> and exciting and exhausting and all of those things. Right. But there really is, you know, grace builds on nature and nature is the curriculum for that supernatural yeah. family we call the church yeah. and especially those supernatural fathers we call bishops. And it's the beauty and pressure, healthy pressure of that very fact of history that led people to instantiate in different ways such as St. Augustine who gathered his priests right. to live a common life in a common rule as a as a kind of family. Right? You know, in one of his famous uh, sermons, he, he actually yeah, addresses, the regular, yeah. he, he addresses the men in his congregation, the fathers of households. Yeah, he says, yeah. my fellow bishops. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. whoa, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. he's tapping into that right. kind of an Well, idea. you know, that, that model of, of Episcopal of, of, of paternity and, and fraternity we find in Augustine, I, I think is not only attractive, but it ought to be uh, uh, applicable today especially. And it is gratifying to see certain bishops uh, who join with, with their, their priests uh, and, and have a father-son relationship. That, that's very edifying, very yeah, inspiring. Yeah. And I think they find it good for their morale. In, instead of this lonely monarch who lives in some splendid isolation right. uh, in the Episcopal palace right. and doesn't doesn't know anything about anyone. Right. Or the tension right. between labor management, you know, the <laughs> yeah, priest yeah. and the bishop. You know, oh, right. So often that administrative bureaucratic model sets right. in. You know, reading your dissertation years ago, just and I stopped and I, I was startled to realize that it's probably not a coincidence that with a handful of exceptions, all of the early church fathers were bishops. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jerome wasn't, Ephraim was a deacon, right. but almost all of them. And I thought, well, that's a coincidence, but it's not. Yeah. All of the early church fathers were bishops because all bishops are called to be church fathers. Yeah, yeah, Whether yeah. they live up to it and are canonized and declared a doctor of the church is yeah, another matter, but I mean, it really is something that gives you a tangible ideal and not just some kind of elusive, unattainable thing. Right. Well, and, and to that, and when you, you've recaptured something from Thomas, Thomas is recapturing, rekindling Paul, yeah, yeah. Um, what does this wisdom, uh, what are some of the things that you could look at for today uh, that this yeah. wisdom can bring to bear for the Episcopacy today? Well, I, I cite in the beginning of the book a little quote from Avery Dulles, which, which really made that connection for me okay. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. The late Cardinal Avery Dulles, in his work, A Church to Believe In, wrote this, I do not know of any system of constitutional guarantees that will both provide for strong pastoral authority in the church and preclude the abuse of such authority. Now he's writing this at a time where we're struggling with difficulties. There are certain errors that are kind of widespread in faith and morals and, and JP2 is dealing with that and there's some, some um, you know, immoral behavior on occasion in the priesthood and there's sometimes true accusations and things like that. He says oh, there's no, he knows of no constitutional guarantee that would provide for good pastors and preclude the abuse. The best guarantee, so there's no system of constitutional guarantee. You can't do it by law only. Right. He says the best guarantee is the personal quality right, yeah. of the office holder. Yeah, the strength of moral character that inheres yeah. in the office holder. And the holiness. And you can't guarantee yeah. it. No, it's that's not right. automatic. Not you can't guarantee yeah. it constitutionally. Right. 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 
But we call, th that's the calling in the Episcopacy. So how can it help us today? Well, today what we see is we're, we're at the tail end of uh, 500 plus years of the Episcopacy in theological and ecclesial discussions being dominated by two very legitimate perspectives, the power of order and the power of jurisdiction. The bishop has to deal with the sacramental life, he has to deal with the jurisdictional life in terms of preaching and in government. Fine, that's right. And, th and that, has be that has come to dominate, if not eclipse, any other concern, at least theologically. Also in the current age, we're, we're dealing with a kind of administrationism, right. and so there's a lot of more mundane concerns that tend to eclipse the spiritual life, right? What I hope, with, with, with the treasures that Thomas and St. Paul give us, and the fathers of the church are throughout this text because Paul, Thomas is just pulling from them interpreting Paul, um, is that uh, this essence of the uh, Episcopal life as the perfection of love of neighbor, mm. where they pour themselves out day and night, live and die, mm. to, to make their subjects holy in the purification of faith and charity, huh? Mm. That, 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 that that is the sine qua non for any of the other duties. Any other duty, uh, administrative or whatever, all is predicated on that alone. And to be that kind of person, there's very, you, you could call this, Thomas's country is a handbook for bishops because it says this is how to get there. Here's how to become suitable, and Paul tells us how to do that. Mm. It's suitable to, to execute these these uh, these duties. And Aquinas, as a Dominican, right, um, whose charism is to bring the fruits of contemplation to preaching, yeah. uh, had a real heart for that same kind of thing in the Episcopal life. Okay, so with for the final segment of Franciscan presents. Hierarchy is therefore an essential feature of the ecclesial unity for which the bishop labors. Episcopal power must be seen as originating in God for the purpose of supernatural communion. Michael G. Cirilla, The Ideal Bishop. Theologically speaking, Aquinas views preaching as an activity that constitutes the church as a congregatio fidelium. The bishop's preaching ministry is paramount since it brings about and strengthens people's faith, thus both bringing into being and strengthening the church itself. Michael G. Cirilla, The Ideal Bishop. Welcome to the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about the ideal bishop, commentaries from St. Thomas Aquinas. Regis, could you start us off? Michael, uh, thanks uh, so much for this book. Uh, there is so much uh, to commend uh, in it. Uh, it is, I think, the ideal book about uh, the ideal bishop uh, as seen through the prism of St. Thomas. And uh, to speak in a non-technical way, it's a magisterial uh, uh, understanding, a uh, comprehensive uh, and really beautifully lucid uh, work, although quite the most moving feature of the book is the dedication uh, to your late father. That was quite lovely. Uh, a, a couple of uh, anecdotes. I, I came across a joke about some guy uh, who was watching the ordination of a bishop and was wondering, what are all of these bishops doing surrounding him at the climactic moment? And the answer was, they're removing his spine. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want bishops like that, okay, made of jelly. Uh, but the 
other uh, anecdote, uh, years ago I was uh, contracted to do some work for a bishop, and a friend of mine who had been ordained by him, uh, I approached, I said, look, what is this guy like? Uh, and he said, well, the thing you have to remember about him is A, he prays, and B, he reads, and he reads a lot. So you can't make an appointment to see him early on because he'll be steeped in prayer and he'll be reading all these books. That way he's got something to share, something to mm. give. And I, I think reading that book uh, will certainly impart to not a few bishops uh, the kind of nerve that will keep uh, the starch in their spine. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Regis. Scott? I want to echo his gratitude. I want to tell you, I read this when it was a dissertation and I really enjoyed it. But I really appreciate the active state of perfecting the manuscript into <laughs> this book. This is a marvelous, and, and I, when I saw the manuscript ready for publication, that's when I sent it off to a good friend of mine, Bishop-elect Robert Barron, and I know he appreciated it also. You know, a constant theme, of course, in my comments is fatherhood, spiritual fatherhood, supernatural fatherhood. I'm reminded of what Malachi says, because even in the Old Testament, like father, like son is what Malachi says. But he, he goes on to say, like father, like son, like priest, like people. And you know, I'm reminded also of what Jean-Baptiste Chotard says in The Soul of the Apostle, one of my favorite books, that if the priest is a saint, then the people will be fervent. If the priest is fervent, then the people will be pious. If the priest is pious, the people will be decent. <laughs> but if the priest is only decent, then the people will be godless. You know, you can't give what you don't have, but you've got to be always a little higher than what you're calling the, 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 the laity up to. And I think this is the book that issues the challenge in a way that is utterly winsome. There's wisdom here, but there's also a lot of honey, not just vinegar, because that's what St. Paul was doing with Titus and Timothy. That's what St. Thomas Aquinas was doing as well. And you've done a marvelous job of capturing that and making it a lively sort of call, a beckoning, not just to bishops, but to, to lay people to read this and say, we got to pray for our clergy in new ways. Mm, thank, you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. Mike. Well, thank you, gentlemen, so much for letting me be here. Um, I wrote in the uh, preface that uh, any, anything good or true in here I attribute to our Lord and to uh, the saints who, whose work I was examining. Uh, but I own any errors in it. It's all, <laughs> all mine. And uh, I, I do sincerely hope this book will be of great value, both for bishops and laity too, mm -hmm. especially uh, for them to pray for bishops and also to have an appreciation of, as you said earlier, Regis, the practically impossible task that a bishop has. It's impossible. You can't do it without grace. It's a monumental, it's pretty much a miracle that a bishop can do, can do what they do. As, as I was writing the book and the dissertation and making it into a book, I gained a real new appreciation for unsung heroes who are bishops who may not do anything profoundly noticeable or uh, uh, extreme that the media would pick up on, but they are providing for sound, many bishops for sound catechesis, sound preaching, the sacraments are available to you, things are running as intended, and there's holiness present in their lives and in the lives of their flock, and it's very often unnoticed. Mm -hmm. And so there's an appreciation there. Of course, my, my, my hope is to renew both the theological discussion on the Episcopal, not that I would do it, but the book would help in a small way mm -hmm. to reintroduce these, some of these notions into the theological discussion, but especially I would love it if bishops could, could, could find fruit here, and I'll tell you um, what I think, just quickly, that could be of value. Thomas gives a thoroughgoing uh, evaluation of the episcopacy in these commentaries, thoroughgoing in this sense. He, following St. Paul's letters to the letter, to the word, 
traces the origin of the episcopacy, how it comes about, how it's conferred, what are the graces given, the spirit of power, love, and self-control, the courage to even give up your life as a martyr if needed, which is the theme of Second Timothy according to the tradition and Aquinas as well. Um, so where it comes from, what it is in its essence is an active state of perfection, uh, perfection of love of neighbor and love of God that you live and die to bring the flock to holiness. The, the, uh, the, the members that would be suitable, the persons, kind of the material cause, the members, the persons who would be suitable or unsuitable for this office. And then of course, something we didn't touch on at all would, is the final end of the bishop. We touched on it in terms of his activity vis-a-vis -vis the faithful in Christ and giving Christ glory, but also Thomas remarks on Paul's statement to Timothy, those who persevere in fighting the good fight will receive a golden crown. The bishop has his own everlasting salvation depends squarely upon his faithful execution of the duties. So if you find out where something comes from, what it is, what makes it up, who makes it up, and what its ultimate purpose is, you've got a very comprehensive evaluation of it. And that's what Aquinas gives. Uh, and to boot, very particular, practical, existential almost, spiritual insights derived from Paul and the tradition on what bishops need, what they need to avoid, what they need to acquire, uh, peculiar sufferings that bishops have that nobody else has. It can feel very isolating. Thomas is very sensitive to that. And uh, you know, so I, I hope it can be of some help because of Paul, because of Thomas, because of the church, mm. not because of me. Amen, amen. Well, thank you, Mike. Um, if you've enjoyed today's program, we have a uh, handout for you uh, on uh, the ideal bishop from Dr. Michael Cirilla. Um, this is available at faithandreason.com for download or just for calling. Uh, we would pass that along to you. Um, Mike, you are a teacher, uh, you are an author, and you are a, a great Catholic thinker. So I thank you for the book and the work you continue to do in forming uh, the next generation. Um, I want to invite you to be a part of the mission of Franciscan University, of forming those who are going out to transform the world. Uh, I'd like to invite you to come to our campus here in Steubenville, Ohio, to get your degree, to be formed and educated and illuminated and, and really sent forth. Or join us online through our, our various online uh, degree programs and certificates. Um, or come to one of our summer conferences, dynamic speakers, uh, evangelization at its finest. Uh, or join us at some of the holy shrines. Uh, through our pilgrimage program throughout the world, or go to faithandreason.com where we have videos, commentary, uh, deeper thoughts to really be an equipping of you uh, to go out to be a part of the new evangelization. Uh, and until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.